and welcome back to the Murdy Creative Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Murdy, and today I did an interview, virtual interview, with my father, Dr. David Murdy, about the current COVID-19 crisis. But first, I want to say thank you to everyone who supported the company so far. If you haven't got a chance, go check us out on the web at murdycreative.co. That's M-U-R-D-Y, creative.co. Or you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram by searching at murdycreative.co to see the best of our products. Follow to keep up to date with our daily photos and be the first one to know about new product launches. You can also use the subscribe button at the bottom of our website to be included in all of our new product announcements. Be sure to check out our laser engraving, personalization options, and exclusive colors on our website, or you can get a blank one on Amazon Prime. All right, so first and foremost, uh, we want to thank all of you who have purchased face masks and, and bought from us. We are very happy to be able to be making those, and it's been a really a joy to make them. Um, also, for those of you who've been, you know, had some stocking troubles and weren't able to get them, please feel free to subscribe to our updates on the mask stocking levels at by texting mask m-a-s-k-s to 77222 that's masks m-a-s-k-s to 77222 or you can text uh, murdy m-u-r-d-y to 77222 to be subscribed to our general updates all right so i did this interview with my father last week and then uh we had done this for over virtual uh a virtual connection and uh, so we didn't there was no cross contamination and I will insert that video here. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the Murdy Creative Company once again. I'm actually here with my father, Dr. David Murdy. He's going to give us a little bit more information about what's going on with COVID-19 and the crazy world we live in. And I am so glad that you are here, Dad, even if it is only virtually. Well, I'm happy to be here too, Colin. And this is a very important and timely topic. Absolutely. So, um... Obviously, just to start it off a little bit, you know, you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, where you're at for those who don't know. I'm a general internist, um, trained mostly in outpatient oriented care and have practiced for now over 30 years uh, in that setting, both in Wisconsin, where uh, Colin's at, but also now here in the Austin, Texas area. Excellent. So you're a doctor. Are you dealing with COVID patients? Are you dealing with you know, people who are dealing with code, like what, what's your relationship to the, the current outbreak as it goes? Well, you know, the world of medicine has changed in the last two weeks from a, a situation of seeing patients in the office and managing in them and helping them in the hospital or dealing with procedures and elective surgeries and all the usual things that happen to people to a point where now we're virtually seeing all of our patients in the outpatient setting where they are being managed, not in the setting where we're used to seeing them in, but in you know, we're, we're watching them on the computer screen, just like I'm seeing you right now. So this new uh, telemedicine, which is what a lot of people are calling it, you know, do you think that's going to be an important tool in the future? Do you think this is going to be a, a big part of the future of healthcare, Or do you think this is more of a temporary shift in these trying times? It is an amazing agreement of the federal government through Medicare and also Medicaid to allow this, which is pressuring all insurance companies to do the same thing for a very simple reason which is we're trying to follow along with the idea of staying home, staying safe. And because of doing that, we're also trying to keep healthcare workers from falling by the wayside as they interact with patients who might or do have COVID. And we're now interacting with those people on video, just like I'm doing with you right now or on the telephone when that is necessary. Um, not only in the outpatient setting, but now you're seeing specialists do that in the hospital setting as well. Do you think that uh, telemedicine is an effective diagnostic tool? I mean, you've obviously been practicing for a long time. Do you think that, uh, you know, in ex your experience, are most, are, are some, most, many, you know, what does that kind of look like for as far as our illness is able to be diagnosed from afar with telemedicine? And, and is that a, a good choice 
My chairman out east told us long ago, if you don't know what's wrong with the patient after you've done interviewing them and getting their history, you better sit down and ask them more questions because you're going to learn very little from the time you spend doing a physical exam and probably even less ordering tests than you will listening to the patient and understanding their history, what the sequence was, what the symptoms are, what's important, where they've been, that type of thing. So a lot of that is done without ever touching the patient or looking at a lab test or an x-ray. And that obviously can be done in a telemedicine situation, particularly with patients you know well, pretty easily. Well, that's great. I mean, that means that A, doctors can be on a beach in Tahiti and answer phones from their, their patients and patients can be on a beach in Tahiti and call their doctor. So it depends. Well, that might be an- it does depend <laughs> upon the, the connection quality. And that is a yeah, trial. <laughs> that is a trial in all these circumstances because many patients, you know, are, I deal with a lot of elderly patients and they're often technologically challenged. And obviously they may be in an area that does not have good internet or cell connection. And so some of the times we are limited by that. Um, but, you know, again, patients have been incredibly happy about this because it's more convenient for them. It's in some ways as convenient for physicians, although there's a steep learning curve in learning how to do it well. Um, I'm not sure any of us have mastered it yet, but it is a way of keeping the patients safe and at home and getting them faster turnaround on their questions and problems. But it's also safer for the healthcare profession who can manage this, you know, from their office or from home, depending upon where they're actually at. So. You know, what's uh, what what did this catch us all by? I mean, it seems like it caught us all by surprise. I mean, you, you obviously, as someone in the medical field, you may have heard about it, you know, maybe a little bit more ahead of everyone else. But, um, you know, how did this how did this come up and become something that is a once in a lifetime, once in a generation kind of quarantine that has never been in effect in the United States or all of these other countries before? How did that happen? How did it catch us so off guard or happen so quickly? Pandemics have, of course, been a part of human history for millennia, as long as we know. And obviously, the most recent horrific one was the pandemic of the Spanish flu of 1918-19, where millions of people died worldwide, more than actually died in World War I. And that has been predicted to reoccur as long as I've practiced medicine. And I'm not sure that this pandemic of COVID-19 will actually parallel that in any way, but it is the closest recent um, pandemic. I I started medicine at the beginning of an era of an unknown disease with my first patient in residency who ultimately had a disease later given a diagnosis of AIDS. So Mm -hmm. we've had multiple types of new or novel types of infections that have come across, but this is the one that has had the greatest risk for death in a long time, the greatest ability to spread, and as we've learned, the greatest ability to spread even among people who have limited or no symptoms, which is catching many people and our testing capability off guard. And many situations, perhaps what happened in Italy to a degree, perhaps what's happened in other parts of this country now, is where you've seen it spread among people who had no reason to think that they were sick and needed to stay home or even had the virus that originated in China. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, obviously, I I think a reasonable question that a lot of people are asking is, is how do I know if I had it? You know, there's been discussion that it's 
you know, some people in the younger category like myself, you know, have very limited symptoms. They get, you know, they may not even know they have it because the symptoms may be so limited that it's just, I have a little bit of a cough, but it could be the change of the season, right? Like it could be my asthma or, you know, something like that. allergies. So, yeah, exactly. So how do you, how do you, you know, what does it look like for a, a, you know, when should I go in? What does a diagnosis look like? When does it get really bad? What does it look like when it's really bad? What's actually happening in the body that we put people on ventilators and, and does that, how does that help? And how does this resolve itself? And, you know, how, how virulent am I after I come out of the hospital or after I come out of, right. you know, the, the things, what does that look like? Well, you touched on a very important point, which is why people are encouraged to wear masks now. Not only, obviously, the physicians caring for individuals, but now in general in public, is that perhaps 20% of people who are infected with COVID and able to transmit the disease do not have symptoms. They wow. don't have fever. They don't have cough. They may not be short of breath. Now, and there's a long list of other possible symptoms. And, and yes, we ask for and screen those questions. And obviously, that does heighten our awareness that that person who answers yes to those questions, or obviously, when we initially started dealing with it, people who had traveled from the Far East or other parts of the world, Italy, we thought, well, you know, they may be the ones who have this disease. But now we realize that anybody can have it. And that's why we're now taking the more drastic precaution of seeing virtually everybody online because I don't know if the person who feels great coming in because they sprained their ankle could have COVID because there are reported cases of people who dislocated their shoulder who, when they get their x-ray back for their dislocated shoulder, have COVID and didn't know it. That's been replicated in studies of, as an example, the cruise ship that toured the Far East but ended up in port in Japan where it was quarantined. When they actually, that was a group of people that they were able to test extensively. 20% of those people did not have symptoms. And yet they were still able, and of course, you don't know how well and how effectively asymptomatic people transmit the disease compared to the more severely ill, which is why we're using masks like this one, okay, that I got, okay, and or medical masks in the office. Um, or N95 masks if we're doing an aerosolizing procedure in the hospital to protect ourselves. Um, and also when you're out walking, you're trying to maintain six feet of distance. And when you're in line, you're six feet away from the person from you because we believe with good data that this is spread typically not more than six feet. And there's always going to be that outlier where someone says it can spread farther or it spreads less. But right now, our opinion is that six feet is an appropriate amount of social distancing from people who are not already close contacts, as an example, within a family living in the same dwelling. Um, the disease, often the most important symptom now, according to my ER staff in my hospital, is shortness of breath. And we're not talking about a little cough or a little shortness of breath. We're talking about shortness of breath that often impairs your ability to feel comfortable walking across a room right, which can occur in people who are young and have no pre-existing lung disease or obviously older people who do. And obviously they have to kind of say, well, is this my underlying lung disease? They're obviously at greater risk. Or is this something new and unusual? Um, the disease wipes people out just like other forms of illness like this, like the influenza season that more or less has just passed. And yes, it can be difficult in certain areas to know which kind of illness it is. But that's in essence how the disease is presenting. 
So, you know, you just touched on, and I thought this was interesting. I was, I was pondering the other day if perhaps this extensive quarantining and social distancing we've been doing has helped reduce the seasonal flu. And as you pointed out, you know, there's a, a, a correlation in many ways between the symptomatic, you know, expression of these two diseases. Are they, are they similar in their form? Are they similar in their function? How does, how does the, what does COVID-19 do to the body that causes Shortness of breath, obviously, I, I've heard a variety of symptoms like nausea and headache and other things, but I don't know how many of those symptoms. I don't, I don't actually know exactly what the exhaustive list of symptoms is and or, you know, if there's a certain order that they present in. And obviously, you know, as you pointed out, asymptomatic people may have some or none of the symptoms. And so, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the main point is that besides the fact that the influenza causes great fatigue, cough, typically productive. The cough associated with um, COVID is typically not productive. Meaning there's and no mucus? There's or? not a lot of mucus. Uh, it is just the struggle to breathe um, with the profound fatigue that comes with it, which people with asthma in some ways already know when they're dealing with severe asthma. Um, and if you think about it, their lungs are filling up with fluid created by this virus and thought to come through the nasal passages or mucous membranes, like from touching your hands to your face, from a surface that has been contaminated, whether it be a table or a, a handrail, um, where people have perhaps coughed or sneezed or just had it on their own hands, and then get it into their mouth or into their nose, then it obviously tends to fall and cause, in some cases, sore throat. But more often than not, it then it ends up in their lungs where it'll cause essentially a profound pneumonia. And what's bringing people to the hospital is this profound pneumonia where they can't breathe. They're often very hypoxic. So you look at someone and you say, oh, based on someone with asthma or someone with lung disease, you might expect their oxygen levels to be a little low. Many of these people are presenting to the hospital with oxygen levels that are very, very low. Because and it so tells obviously you they got the, how they diffuse got it is. They got the O2 stat little clips that clips onto your finger. I, I, I know Uncle yep. Dwight had one when he was doing his lung yes. stuff. So, yeah, with Still those, does. obviously, like a normal person on a normal level will have 98 to 100% O2 diffusion. You know, Clearly in the mid to high 90s. Yeah. Someone who's got, you know, uh, is having in the middle of an asthma attack may have, I mean, what would that number look like? And then what would a well, COVID patient presenting look like? We, we consider a significant level that requires oxygen if they have levels below 88 on a consistent basis because that can tax their hearts. And we're seeing COVID patients with oxygen levels in the 70s, Whoa. Um, which can cause That's confusion and lots of other things that go with it. And, and they require lots of oxygen. And then obviously, you know, they might be able to just tide it out because if your body, you know, we don't have an antibiotic for this. Um, patients aren't typically co-infected with a bacterial infection, which is the more common form of how influenza kills older people in particular, is they get a secondary bacterial pneumonia. And in that case, you know, antibiotics do help someone with that type of bacterial pneumonia. Antibiotics have not seemed to have much of a purpose as an anti-infective in this viral pneumonia. And what typically is the most effective is allowing your own immune system over a week or so to develop an appropriate response, which, of course, we are naive to. This is not a virus that we've seen before, although other coronaviruses are typical cold viruses, right? The thing causes a cold in the summer or the cold in the winter. 
This one we've never seen, so our body has no native immunity to it, and then it overwhelms our lungs, and in some unfortunate patients, it causes adult respiratory distress syndrome and you know, a severe inflammatory response that can cause their liver, their kidneys, and their other organs, including, in this case, their heart, to fail. And many of that, many, for many people, that's the cause of their death, is that life support, which is what a ventilator does. It can provide high amounts of oxygen in a very precise manner to try to get rid of the carbon dioxide that you breathe off and get enough oxygen in through your diseased airways and little alveoli that help exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide into your bloodstream. We, it over, the, the, the disease can overwhelm our ability to technologically get that into your bloodstream. And yes, there are extracorporeal membrane oxygenators, that's called ECMO, but that's actually not available in most intensive care units because it's a very specialized service. Um, so even with that, patients often have other organ systems that fail and, and succumb because of that. And the death rate obviously is in question because we don't know exactly what the denominator is, how many people are truly infected. The estimates range around one or more percent of the population who are infected Obviously, it might be 20 or more percent of people who are 80 or greater, and it might be one-tenth of a percent for people who are under 25. But in our hospital right now, we have a range of ages from 30s to 70s who are on ventilators for COVID right now. Um, so, so it can affect all ages. You know, so this, this does seem to have, I mean, obviously with anything novel, there's just a learning curve that's just coming out. And I mean, a lot of the, the research that's being done, I mean... Very steep. It's, it's, curve. Yeah, it's it's had a lot of, you know, you know, we we there's, a, a, I think, a, a genuine sense in the scientific community, which is, well, we haven't done enough research to come to any conclusions. And there's a general sense in the rest of the world community, which is we don't care. Tell us what you know. Um, you know, so and the been, research community and the research community <laughs> is really responding because you're seeing papers published in the Journal of American Medical Association that was submitted last week of five people, as an example, treated with convalescent serum from patients who have recovered, where you can recover the antibodies from these people's blood given to other individuals who are terribly sick and has helped some of them recover. So we have hope through that. Obviously, the vaccine research is going apace, and I do not think it's going to take as long as two years for us to have at least a workable vaccine. Now, it may be a while before we know if the initial vaccines are as effective as we would hope and compare with other vaccines. But, you know, we worked with a shingles vaccine that was 50% effective for more than a decade before a newer one came out that's 70% effective and which is the only available shingles vaccine now for many people. And seasonally, we know that the flu vaccine may be 45% effective or 80% effective. It depends upon how well those who create the vaccines are able to match the immunity tried to provide by the vaccine to what we will see in the body. Now, we don't believe COVID is mutating at this point in time, but there can be antigenic shift in these types of viruses that will further complicate not only helping um, determine what's the right vaccine, but whether we will need to make new vaccines in the future that will have to be updated and how often, how long the immunity you get from the disease is, how long the immunity you get from the vaccine. Those are all things that will take time to figure out. Well, and I think, you know, so, so obviously kind of shifting a little bit away from the disease itself, which obviously is, is just massively, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of question marks, you know, all of the modeling 
you know, that seems to be out there, that seems to be quoted. I mean, first off, the modeling continues to evolve at a very rapid pace, and there's a lot of just X factors that, obviously, I would never want to be in modeling because this is the worst kind of variable modeling you could possibly imagine because you don't know if the data that you're working off of is good. You don't know exactly how any of the mitigating facts are working, and especially, as you pointed out, with the asymptomatic carriers, we have no idea, A, how many people are asymptomatic. That, that, that's a difficult question to even answer. And then beyond that, if there are a whole bunch of asymptomatic people, you know, that could very well obviously cause problems with, with reintroduction and relaunch of any sort of, you know, back to work effect. And it's, a, it's so. all very controversial. I mean, they canceled South by Southwest, a very famous, very well attended music um, celebration that occurs and with lots of other activities here in Austin to the great disadvantage of many people who work here and work very hard in Austin. And now at the, at the time, it was terribly controversial. And now, in retrospect, the idea that we saved this particular part of Texas from having tens of thousands of people from all over the world country, yeah, yeah, definitely come sure. here has is looking very you know wise. Um, we believe a lot of the Italian um, uh, spread of the disease was of a specific set of soccer games that were held in Milan between a mm-hmm. Spanish team and a team from a community called Bergamo. So. Many of those people who came to Milan, obviously somewhere, someone had it. We believe the source may have actually been a, a, a person from Munich. Not only did that spread to Bergamo in Italy and catch many, many people off guard in a 70,000 spectator soccer match, but obviously then to Spain, where they are obviously dealing with their version of the illness as well. And, you know, the dilemma in Spain and to a greater degree in Italy was that their healthcare systems were completely overwhelmed. So you exceeded the ability of their hospitals, their intensive care units to manage patients. And that's what social distancing and wearing masks is all about. It's not that this cures anything. It doesn't. But it does slow the progression down. And if we can slow it down, we will not have people dying in their apartments for lack of medical attention. Older people choosing not to go to the hospital because they don't want to be in that situation where they don't have visitors and the nurses are gowned up like space people all the time and and the doctors are monitoring them from the hallway because they'd rather not go in the rooms because we've had doctors die and nurses die from their exposure to this illness. So it's not something that the healthcare industry takes lightly. And if we can slow it down, we won't cure the disease that way, but we may wait it out long enough that we can keep it under control, adequately care for those who are, are who this disease befalls and then wait it out until we can vaccinate everybody. And at that point, put this disease as best we can determine the immunity of the vaccine in the past, just as we have with other terrible illnesses like smallpox and polio um, and other diseases that were ravages in your uncle Dwight's time period. That was when the pools were all drained and nobody went outside for fear of polio. Um, Obviously, that's affected presidents of the United States and other people. So this is, these are not trivial illnesses that are only seen in terribly disadvantaged communities and, you know, parts of the world that we don't have to interact with. This is stuff that happens in our world. With, um, with obviously, the, there's, there is some discussion, I know, about how by flattening the curve now, unless obviously a vaccine was deployed very, very quickly, like astoundingly quickly, it wasn't necessarily going to prevent you know, a, a vast majority of the people from getting it. You know, there, there was a discussion that we don't know whether the summer will kill off this virus like it does the flu. We can hope. And there's some evidence, I, I think, to support that, perhaps. But um, 
there's bound to be, it seems, a second wave. And obviously, if you didn't get it the first time around, it's very possible or likely that you might get it the second time around or the third time around or however many waves this looks like. And there is some concern, obviously, that if the summer is the thing that is able to slow the virus because of the temperatures, that it may re- have a resurgence in the fall. Do you think that's do you think that the number of people that are getting it now is going to create any sort of herd immunity of any sort? And do you think that the by slowing the curve, by lowering the curve now, we're likely to have a better result in the second wave? Do you think it's likely to be similar or do you think that maybe because we've been building up our experience with the disease and theoretically by that point we'll have yet another handful of months of information to work off of, we may be able to create some sort of process where we don't have to shut down the entire economy and have everyone stay at home to be able to maintain some level of, of, of progress. What do you think that looks like, I should say? I mean, I think, the, I agree, the econometric models that are being developed are fraught with peril. I do believe in my practice and in the community I'm in, social distancing is slowing the progression of the disease, where we had modeled what we thought was going to happen and how fast this would ramp up. We're seeing it happen slower. Um, Obviously, in healthcare, for many in parts of the healthcare system, that's created great woes, just as it has in the rest of the healthcare industry. We're not doing elective procedures that are often supporting our hospitals. You know, people are putting off many kinds of healthcare because they just assume not go to the hospital and have this procedure, go to the clinic and have this test or this lab. Now, granted, a lot of it we can do virtually, but there's still things that are putting put off. Like getting but your grandson, if, like James, we just had to take him and get his four month vaccines, and that was very stressful. Now, thankfully, they had set up a a special clinic that was designed specifically to not deal with any COVID patients and not deal with have any healthcare workers who had been anywhere near the COVID patient centers. But, you know, obviously that's becoming more and more difficult as more and more COVID patients are demanding more and more resources of the of the healthcare community. Yeah. and, And we're not we're probably less concerned that a sequestered infant is in trouble than their parents, depending upon where their parents go and what kind of work or if they are working, what they are doing, and how well they're social distancing from the people around them, although many parents are obviously being very careful about that, which is terribly important. But, you know, the, the idea of social distancing goes back to, you know, how do we put value on lives? What I think what people really want to avoid, not only on a medical level, but on a political level, is what we're seeing reports coming out of Italy, where many older people, the kind of people that I take care of, just said, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm 80-something years old. I've got heart disease or whatever. If I get COVID, I'm just going to stay home and die if I, if I succumb to the disease. Now, obviously, not everybody does. Many people can get the disease and do great. It's a relatively minor illness. They have a cough, maybe a fever. They feel lousy for a few days, and then they're kind of better. And maybe they're a little tireder than their usual influenza when they don't get vaccinated. But hey, it wasn't a big deal. And I've interacted with patients this week who specifically had that type of course, maybe their wife had a more severe case of it, but they also had teenagers in the house who didn't get sick at all. Now, I don't believe that that teenager in the house who didn't get sick at all was without disease. That teenager is an asymptomatic spreader. Now, fortunately, the school's being closed. Those people stayed at home. Yeah. So hence, there are fewer people who are getting it. I mean, if you look at the newspaper, a ski trip of organized ski clubs from out the United States that had a wonderful celebration in, in I think, Sun Valley in Idaho, um, spread the disease many, many different places. 
because they were all there in close proximity, none of which knew at the time, it was not social distancing at that point, that one or more of those people had had it from travels or who knows what, and then spread it to, I think, more than 10% of the people who were at this event have been tested positive. Now, you have to remember, we're right now only testing very symptomatic individuals because that makes the test more accurate. And again, 30% of those who are tested negative probably still have the disease. They're falsely negative. And if you look at patients often who are hospitalized, including those of mine, we've often seen that their first tests and their second tests were negative, but they had very classic findings. They were treated and isolated and cared for as a COVID patient, and their third and subsequent tests were positive. And those are in people that we have a high likelihood. So when you're saying I have minor symptoms and I'd like to get tested, that will ultimately change the econometric model. When we can immunologically and through PCR test someone's nose for the presence of virus and test through their blood for the presence of immunoglobulins, IgG and IgM. IgM is produced early and IgG is produced at seven to 10 days and say, oh, you're exposed and sick. You have presence of the virus and you have IgM. You definitely need to be isolated and quarantined. You don't need to interact with anybody. You go to your room and we'll bring you food and it'll be outside the door. And you have your own bathroom. And then when you're all healed up and you're 10 days after your symptoms, we will Clorox everything and that'll help. Versus the person who then, as you point out, has their disease. They have a negative PCR in their nose. The virus is no longer being shed. They have immunoglobulins, both of IgM, which will wane, but IgG that will not wane for hopefully months, if not longer. Those people are immune. Those people could go back to work. Those people could take care of COVID patients and not worry, at least in the short run, about getting it again. And we want that kind of information. And now the FDA has fast-tracked approval of that type of thing with a single drop of blood. But you can only make so much of this equipment so fast and get it out to people in a timely enough fashion no where it's accurate. And no you kidding. know about that. Yeah. We're trying to make <laughs> I was masks say, we've every had day. to switch over our entire production and we understand that there's just only, there's only so many hours in the day and so many hands that can make it. So I, I get that. Um, you know, with, with obviously the, the concern that people have about getting at home and being home with COVID, um, you know, whenever I have influenza, the flu, you always recommend, you know, Alka-Seltzer Cold Plus or something like that. Is there any, are, are any of the um, over-the-counter symptom-relieving type medications effective for, you know, a home treatment of this? Or is there just not, is there nothing that relieves the symptoms? Or, and I mean, the answer may be, I don't know. And I obviously, I, you know, we, there, this is something that I don't know if there's even, you know, good data on. But like, if I get... COVID and I have, and I think I have COVID, but it's not enough to go to the hospital, but I'm not feeling great. You know, can I take Alka-Seltzer Cold Plus and will it help? Or, you know, can I take, you know, Gwyphenicin or, or, you know, you know, any of those, or, I mean, what's the, what is it, or will that hurt me? Will that, will that have a negative effect on the course of the treatment, which I know ibuprofen early on was supposedly having a negative effect on that. You know, there's been a number of different medicines that have been tried, obviously over-the-counter agents like Gwyphenicin, which thins mucus, um, Dextromorphin, which is a common over-the-counter cough suppressant, may help. I don't think there's any data to say, well, this has how well it helps. There's very poor data on how it helps for typical cold and influenza symptoms. So don't feel like this is a great deficit in medicine. Um, if you're saying, well, what about should I avoid ibuprofen? I don't think the data is, is conclusive. Should I avoid 
um, certain blood pressure medicines that are called ACE inhibitors. The data is not conclusive. Even though this virus attaches to ACE receptors on our airways, I'm not sure that using an ACE inhibitor will make that much difference. I mean, you have to be very careful of taking physiologic-based studies and translating them directly into clinical practice because things don't always line up like we'd like. Obviously, there are lots of medicines that are thought to help reduce the um, ability of the virus to grow and replicate, uh, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which are medicines that originally were used for malaria but are no, now more commonly used for rheumatic illnesses. Um, they seem to have some role, and there are tests being done, including with the Institutional Review Board's approval by your um, Uncle John at the Henry Ford Health System, where they're trying to test and see, will this help not only people who are sick, but also people who might then take it preventatively in a high-risk circumstance, think ICU nurses, and might it help them be less likely to get sick? They're studying all those things, and many of those agents are being used because we don't have anything else to use, and we're trying to try anything that might help as long as it doesn't hurt people. Obviously, there are medicines that are produced, um, what we would call biologics or drugs that are designed to specifically reduce the inflammation, the terrible um, self-destruction that can occur from our own immune system, um, reaving, you know, uh, causing havoc on our lungs. And for many people, it is that inflammatory storm that really is the fatal event in their ICU stay. And there are drugs that are being tested to see if that works. There's limited evidence pro and con for all of this. There's even arguments that azithromycin, a classic macrolide antibiotic, may have some antiviral properties, not given as an anti-infective, meaning antibiotics don't stop viruses like they stop bacteria, but maybe it has some antiviral effect, particularly in combination with hydroxychloroquine. But we don't know. None of those medicines should be used by people on the street or in their doctor's office because there's not enough evidence to support them. And we want to divert those supplies to right now where we believe they might do the most good, which is in the intensive care unit and among the staff who has to care for them. Um, we don't want a third of the ICU nurses to get sick. Because if you think we're in trouble now, you start to watch respiratory therapists, frontline staff who have to care for these patients who are often the only compassionate touch that these people see. And obviously the ICU doctors and the anesthesiologists and everybody from medicine is now lining up to take a role in helping back up if we have a surge in places like New York, but obviously in the rest of the country. If we lose a third of those people because they get sick, um, it's going to be a lot of lonely deaths for people, and that will be unacceptable in our society. That will be worth n number of trillion dollars with a gross national product erased out of this year's equation. Um, but in light of the fact that the rest of the society isn't necessarily changed, I think we will rebound economically from that at some future point in time. Might it take a while? Sure. Um, you know, that's why you invest for the long term and you quit looking at stock prices every day because you'll just be unhappy all the time. So uh, you, you mentioned that there's some of these trials are going on with hydroxychloroquine and, and Z-Packs and other things along those lines. Do we have any idea how long those trials may take? Are we talking about something that could go on for a few weeks and we'd have answers? Or is this the kind of thing where we're going to hear about this in August after, you know, four months or five months of trials? I don't I mean, for the for the normal people, I mean, like myself, I don't know how long a drug like this would have to be tried and how many, what the sample size would have to look like for it 
be it could be considered in the medical world an answer that is acceptable. And and that's where, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are are saying, well, you know, how long is this before we have an answer? And I, I don't know if you know the answer to that or if, if there, you know, you have any thoughts on that. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of people going, are we going to know next week or is it going to be in August when we finally have some answers? It'll depend upon the type of answer you're looking for. If you're looking for preliminary information that will obviously take a little longer to fully come to fruition where I can give you more exacting values, that'll take months. If you're saying, well, we have some initial information within a period of four to six weeks, yes. Again, part of it's related to the cycle time of the infection. If as an example, you say, all right, if everybody's wearing protective equipment, a certain percentage of people will get sick. And if they're no one's perfect, no one does their hand washing perfect, but let's assume that everybody right now is being fairly diligent. If we can then, you know, if that means that only one in a hundred healthcare workers get sick, how many thousand healthcare workers do you have to have enrolled in a study with a medication compared to nothing? Them all hopefully, you know, thinking they're taking something to help them to then show a difference, a meaningful difference in a short period of time. That takes, you know, a while. If you're saying, um, I give convalescent serum to five people and four of them get better and one of them dies where we would have expected it to be the reverse, where four of them to die and one of them to live. Well, that's, that'll, that information will come out very quickly, just as it did for Ebola, because many of those patients who were treated and successfully brought back from Ebola were treated with convalescent serum from those who had fortunately recovered from the infection. So obviously, I think there's, a, there's an ethical question that obviously comes into play. Um, you know, with testing any of these drugs, and that's how do you how do you figure out who's in the control group versus who's in the the test group? Because if you have a, a medicine that you genuinely think can help people, how do you? I mean, there's obviously the discussion of double blinds, and how do you? But I mean, how do you look a patient in the eye and say, nope, you're not going to be one of the ones to get the, this, this medicine that we don't know if it's going to work or not? I mean, is that happening? Is that the kind of thing that you know? There's there are they conducting? Let me I should say this. Obviously, and you may not know any of the specifics of the study, but you know, in a situation like this, would they actually do a double-blind uh, placebo study, or would it be the kind of thing where we test everyone with the drug and it, we see if it's higher than the previous numbers before we started testing with the drug, drug and using those numbers as the blind? By no means am I a statistician or test person, and many different ways that you just described are probably being done right now. But there are being done double-blinded trials where people are getting active medicine and identical-looking tablets that taste the same that have, you know, just vehicle in them to see. Because otherwise, you can't really tell. And, and you know, otherwise, you'll have a case-controlled trial where you say, well, in this hospital, we used it. In that hospital, we didn't. And that hospital got sick. And this hospital didn't. And you, you, there'll be all kinds of that information and that people will have to sift through and look at it to try to come up with a conclusion. Well, I'm glad I'm not one of those people that has to make that decision because I'd imagine that's a pretty difficult one. But And they are difficult. So, you know, obviously with this, um, you know, I think everyone's hoping that there's some good news. Um, you know, is there is there any good news you can share with us, obviously, in this? I mean, there's, there's you know, I've heard that there's flattening of the curve, which is, it's funny. I, I think the, the discussion where people are talking about how it's flattening the curve in New York you know, the, I think everyone's kind of thinking to themselves, all right, we did it. But I, 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 I'm a little hesitant about that, mostly because, you know, how long do we have to keep the curve flat? Do we keep this? Do we expect it to go down after it's flattened? Do we expect it to plateau and for how long? But, you know, obviously, 
you know, we're looking for some good news. So, you know, is there any good news in all of this or any good news we can look forward to today? The good news, um, and I didn't see today's um, unfortunate death count from New York, was that at least over the weekend, it was less than they had thought. It did not continue to climb. Uh, I did not hear today's rate, so I, I could be wrong. But the point is, is that that's very good news. Because to my knowledge, New York hasn't got to the point where they're having to say, I don't have a ventilator for you, and I'm sorry, but you're not going to do well. Um, or having to turn and make you know, rationing decisions of, oh, you're 80, we're not going to take care of you. This other person's 50, and we're going to take care of you. To my knowledge, that hasn't, it hasn't come quite to that point. I'm sure that there have been a lot of people who have self-rationed themselves, um, as we have seen in Italy, where older people just simply didn't bother to get care because they knew that they would be 50th in line and they wanted their younger daughter or their grandson to get appropriate care. And they knew that if they died, they'd lived a wonderful life and would pass on and, and be in heaven. Um, but I think with the advent within weeks, I believe, of, of more thorough, adequate testing, both through polymer chain reaction, that's the nose uh, swab, and blood testing for immunoglobulins, through whatever technique is ultimately available commercially uh, in wide numbers, we will begin to see that. And then, then we can do what happened in other countries. South Korea is a good example where they tested and then very aggressively quarantined individuals who were sick. Um, we didn't do that in this country. I mean, we're telling people to self-quarantine and that puts obviously loved ones around them. But we may be in a position where we can say, okay, we have enough beds. If you test positive, we're going to quarantine you, like in the old sanitariums, remember they used to exist for tuberculosis, where we could keep people in specialized hospitals or specialized centers where they could get medical attention to the extent that they need it, many might not need it, but that they can be kept away from the population at large. And that will drastically reduce the spread of the disease. And then later on, when vaccines come available, we can more heavily vaccinate everybody. And hopefully at that point, the disease process is kept in check. We'll get to 70, 80% of people who are either immunized or have been sick with the illness and are immune. And at that point, there will be a degree of herd immunity where even if one or two people get the disease, enough people around them are immune through vaccination or from having had the disease that the disease won't spread very far because there's not enough targets for it to infect. Excellent. Well, I mean, this has been great. I think this is excellent, obviously, as uh, as this continues to evolve. Um, I mean, we all learn more and, you know, there's more evolving. But, you know, one of the things, obviously, is a, just a short promo for the company in two different ways. Obviously, Dad's uh, sporting one of our masks that we're working on making. And, you know, with the CDC changes, obviously, that's a concern. And, you know, so obviously, ours have the metal nose piece that's designed to help create a nice seal. And they tie in the back so you're able to get them nice and, and tight so, you're, you know, they seal well on your face. And they've got their pleats and they've got that the place inside the mask for the uh, filtration media and all of that other good things. So that's one thing. So if you haven't got your mask, uh, we're working every day to increase our producti production and productivity. Um, so we're hoping to be able to have more and more masks available and you can check those out. And I mean, I think, you know, if you've got thoughts on how effective they are or, you know, what, what your thoughts are on masks in general. Well, you know, masks were initially not recommended in part because we wanted to preserve medical grade masks for people on the front line, and that is still true. But masks like this, which by the way, are much more comfortable than I thought they would be. Thanks, um, <laughs> Well, you know, I didn't know what to expect, and I've seen homemade masks from patients and others. Um, 
with the insert of the filtering material, which is what you breathe through, and the fairly good closure from the fabric. I actually, in some ways, prefer this, other than it's warm here in Texas, to um, my surgical mask, which in some ways has more air that can get around it. But of course, that's known. We knew that surgical masks weren't as effective as the N95 masks that go around your nose and mouth that you know I have somewhere. Um, and if I was doing aerosolizing procedures, I would wear it. But otherwise, N95 masks need to be preserved for those people in the hospital who need them. Um, and in the office, I wear a surgical mask, even though I'm not necessarily interacting with patients, but I am interacting with staff, and I don't know where they've been. They don't know where I've been. I can't tell by looking at them whether they're infected or not. And when we're out walking around, we've been wearing our masks. And certainly to the extent that we do go to other places, which we've restricted drastically, having a mask on helps you from getting it from where you are. It's like the guy said in the little video you were referring to in your previous podcast. If you wash your hands before you go anywhere, you put on a mask that is clean. You at least aren't taking anything you touch and putting it into your face. And that in and of itself is an enormous benefit. And then if you couple it to the fact that you're not, even if you're asymptomatic, spreading this to anybody, you're doing your bit to show a little love to everybody. And at the same time, you're probably reducing the transmission of those particles around you by some degree, even if it's 10% right now, which is the lowest limit that I've seen in literature of what a cloth-based mask, and this is more than that with the filtration in it, even if it's only lowering it by 10%, for a lot of people, that will be a meaningful enough gesture. Will in six months we be wearing masks everywhere? I don't know. But I don't think it's wrong to have a mask and to use it as it's been recommended by the CDC and the federal government, at least until we're past the more serious social distancing part of our lives, which frankly might go on for months in one form or another. Um, hopefully the economy will get going again before too long and they'll start buying, you know, leather journals again. But in the meantime, I'm very proud of you for making masks and making good quality masks that I think would serve, you know, everybody outside of a healthcare setting extraordinarily well. Well, we're very proud to be making them and we've got a great team that's been working really hard. And you actually touched on the other little promo I wanted to do. For those of you who haven't been journaling, boy, is this a good time to be journaling. Boy, is this the kind of thing that your kids and grandkids are going to ask about for sure. So yeah, I here's, see here's my little black book. Yeah, dad's got his little black book. Yeah. So definitely, uh, you know, we are still making leather journals. I will say though, we have been considering potentially shutting that part of the business down for a short period just so that we can get caught up on our masks. But our hope is to be able to make journals and, and continue to offer those, even if it's on a little bit of a longer lead time and we maybe only spend one or two days a week working on making sure we get those out. Uh, so yeah, definitely. If you haven't gotten your journal yet and you're interested in that, be sure to get that. And, uh, Thanks so much, Dad, for taking the time and talking with me. And uh, we uh, we really hope uh, hope you guys stay healthy down there. And uh, we're glad you're able to join us. Well, keep calm, carry on. As your journal said, I hope people take the time to write their experiences. This is going to be one of those things where people are going to ask you, "What was it like when you couldn't get Jif peanut butter, or you had to be careful about toilet paper, or whatever?" Because people will forget that gasoline was down to hundred dollar thirty five in my community today. Um, and also the, the fact is, is that, you know, having a little bit of time to process that through writing may help reduce some of the anxiety and depression that I'm seeing in many people who are taking all of this infodemic that's coming from about COVID and just wiping them out. They just feel overwhelmed and can't sleep at night. And that's lowering their immunity and making them more susceptible to infection. And we want that to be ended. 
Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't underestimate the fact that 10 million people lost their jobs over the last two weeks. And I mean, that's, there's, there is a, there is a cost obviously in, uh, in people's mental wellness and physical wellness to some extent for obviously the, the, the physical toll that, that kind of stress takes in, on you. And I mean, journaling can be a huge way to help deal with some of that. So we're, uh, we're glad that we can be able to offer what we can for both physical and mental health. And, uh, we're just going to keep at it. And we hope, uh, we, we hope, I, I mean, I personally, for just completely selfish reasons, hope that you stay healthy. And, uh, we hope that you and all the people in your practice continue to stay healthy as well. So, you know, have a great day and God bless. And wash your hands, wash your hands. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, dad. You're welcome. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in today. Be sure to check back in for our next topic. And don't forget to check that subscribe button below to be sure to get the latest podcast right away. If you have any questions or concerns about your leather binder, journal, folio, or mask, please feel free to reach out to us on the main page of our website at murdycreative.co. Or you can contact us via Instagram or Facebook. You can text, email, call, direct message, all the usuals, and I'll do my best to get back to them as soon as possible. But I do appreciate your patience. We've been totally overwhelmed with emails over the last couple of days, and so it's been a little bit slower on the response. And I appreciate all of you who be patient with us. Uh, if you think we deserve it, a good review can go a long way to help us grow our new community, and word of mouth is still the best form of advertising, so please tell your friends, especially with the masks. One of the things that we have been struggling with is to get the word out that we are making and selling masks to people, because a lot of uh, companies that are making masks aren't selling them to private individuals, and currently uh, the rules and restrictions on Facebook and Instagram say that you can't advertise masks. I don't know why they're doing that, but anyway. So please tell your friends. It really does make a difference for us. It really helps share the word. So uh, if you have any podcast topics you want to hear more about, send them my way. I'm always happy to engage with our growing community, and I want to give you guys what you want. Plus, it also helps me because there's a lot of things going on, and you know, having some suggestions always makes it a little easier. Uh, if you're looking for multiple binders for gifts, giveaways, menus, really any reason, ask about our bulk discounts available. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day, and goodbye.